Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital and AstraZeneca. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about melanoma and brain metastases with Dr. Twee Tran. Dr. Tran is an instructor of medicine in medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Dr. Tran, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Absolutely. So I am a translational researcher at Yale Cancer Center. Uh, I did my residency and fellowship in Hemonc here, and I'm happy to be involved in the melanoma team treating patients with advanced malignancies and skin cancers. Um, I do a lot of translational research, which means that I um, working at the bench, but also take what we find at the bench straight to the clinic so that we can affect real change in how we treat this disease. So tell us a little bit more about your research. I mean, you, you work in the melanoma team. Um, how, how exactly does the translational research part fit in and what specifically are you looking at? I've been spending the past couple of years really looking at innate immunity in the brain and how we can really capitalize on stimulating those cells in conjunction with our available, currently available therapies to try to improve disease outcomes for our patients. So just to give you examples, so one of the projects that I'm highly involved with is trying to target the blood-brain barrier. Um, you know, the blood-brain barrier has been a really understudied, but very clinically relevant and highly impactful uh, way for cancers to really gain an advantage and to metastasize and grow in, in the brain. Um, and so really trying to focus on the blood-brain barrier and try to get these drugs into the brain um, has been an area of ongoing interest. Just to give you an example, so one of our currently active uh, projects is looking at targeting VEGF, which stands for vascular endothelial growth factor. It's a cytokine that really stimulates blood vessel development. And sometimes these tumors and the immune cells surrounding them will secrete this uh, cytokine to help stimulate tumor growth. And so how can we target this protein as well as maybe target the endothelial cells themselves to help decreased tumor growth in the brain. And so we have a couple of interesting targets, one of which is currently uh, an active clinical trial within our melanoma group, looking at melanoma and lung cancer patients who have brain metastases. And so this tr clinical trial, is it's a phase two study looking at the combination of bevacizumab, which is our anti-VEGF drug to help minimize uh, blood vessel development, in combination with an immune-stimulating agent, a checkpoint inhibitor, uh, pembrolizumab, which targets another pathway to help stimulate our own body's immune system to help fight cancer. Recently, we're also going to be developing a second clinical trial uh, of pembrolizumab, or immune-stimulating agent, in combination with linvatinib, which instead of targeting the cytokine itself, targets the VEGF receptor on the endothelial cells and hopefully we can get even a more dramatic immune response. So, Twee, I want to take a step back here and just kind of talk a little bit about the blood-brain barrier itself. What exactly is it, and how does it affect cancer cells? 
you know, as we're always learning more and more about the blood-brain barrier, it's not as simple as we first thought, where it's just comprised of the blood vessel endothelial cells. Um, the blood-brain barrier is actually much more complicated. It's composed of not only the endothelial cells, but all these supportive cells adjacent to them. And so this includes parasites, which control the vasoconstriction or the ability of these blood vessels contract and dilate. It also in includes all the supportive astrocytes, which have their little processes in NFET on the endothelial cells. It includes interneurons. It includes microglia. Uh, microglia are considered sort of the innate immune cells that reside within the brain. How come the cancer cells can get into the brain, but the drugs can't? You know, the blood-brain barrier in normal states uh, without any pressure related to metastases um, is a very intact endothelial layer, meaning that there are these specific interconnections with, within the, or between the endothelial cells that prevent any other molecules, such as drugs, uh, such as immune cells from infiltrating or getting beyond them. Uh, what they typically are described as uh, soldiers, you know, remember the, so the Roman soldiers, if you ever watch one of those movies, um, with all their shields up. So it, they form an impenetrable uh, barrier to help prevent things from getting past that, that layer. Um, and that's what's really caused a lot of issues, uh, for example, in breast cancer therapy where chemotherapies that traditionally work in breast cancers can't penetrate into the brain. And so we're seeing a lot more of late relapses in the brain because these uh, cancer effective therapies are not able to penetrate and circulate there. So why can the cancer cells get through those those Roman shields? I mean, it sounds like that should really be, as you say, an impenetrable barrier. And yet cancer cells can seem to sneak their way through. How is that? Cancer cells... Um, when they metastasize, they go through a very complex process, um, basically giving them the ability to invade through normal tissue. And during that process, they adopt a different shape, a different morphology. Uh, they become migratory. They get enter the bloodstream. And when they circulate, they essentially get into the brain and either lodge at branch points within those blood vessels in the brain um, Cancer cells have all sorts of different proteins and things that they upregulate or express to help them survive and proliferate during this process. And one of a few of those proteins include things like matrix metalloproteases, where they can break apart different elements of the tumor stroma or the tumor microenvironment. And this allows them essentially to break apart uh, those tight junctions within those endothelial cells, basically, um, you know, uh, wedge themselves in between these cells and eventually be able to set up shop and grow there. So I guess, you know, just to press, press the point further, my question is, if the tumor cells can kind of finagle their way through this barrier, either they make holes in the barrier, they, they kind of distort and try to get through, then are those changes to the blood-brain barrier that allow the cancer cells to get through, those don't seem to be permanent enough to allow our drugs to get through? Or are, is there another thing at play? Is, are the drugs too large? Are they? Is it that they uh, can't squish through the, the little spaces? Or is this more than simply a mechanical problem? 
So I think the answer is actually a little complicated to address, and we don't really at this point fully understand how our current effective therapies really penetrate and get into the brain. So one hypothesis is that actually when we give immune therapy, these immune stimulating drugs that help educate our own immune system to fight the cancer, we're doing that below the neck, so peripherally. So these educated immune cells can there then subsequently migrate through the circulation into the brain where they have a much easier ability to transmigrate through the endothelial layer and get into the tumor to where they can have an anti-tumor effect. The other component of this is maybe the defects that are that lead to forming a tumor in the brain cause vessel leakiness and vessel damage. And so such that you have this chronic edema or loss of vessel integrity. And that therefore allows these large monoclonal antibodies, um, which are essentially our immune checkpoint drugs. They allow these drugs to actually access into the tumor because these vessels are already so leaky. So that's really great news on the immunotherapy front, knowing that these therapies can get into the brain. I guess the next question is, well, how come chemotherapy drugs can't do that then too? I mean, we give them peripherally into a vein below the neck, right? Into a hand. They get into a blood vessel. Um, How come they can't follow the same kinds of path that the immunotherapies can. Yeah, so our blood-brain barrier through our development has, you know, upregulated a lot of drug efflux pumps. And so these endothelial cells that, that constitute the blood-brain barrier, they have these specialized pumps that whenever drug does penetrate into the cells, they pump them right back out into the circulation. And so that's what limits the effectiveness of standard chemotherapy. Uh, and it's really not a very good uh, treatment option for patients with brain metastases. Okay. I get all of that. So now let's talk a little bit more about this VEGF that you were mentioning just a moment ago. This vascular endothelial growth factor, is that something that is present on particular cancer cells that these therapies now are attacking? So VEGF is uh, upregulated in a lot of different cell types, and one of those being melanoma, where we have found that circulating VEGF is actually a poor prognostic marker in patients. Uh, so they essentially they have worse outcomes when they have elevated circulating levels of this protein. So the protein is in the circulation. It's not necessarily on the tumor cells or is it on both? So it's on, it's very ubiquitously expressed. It can be expressed by the tumor cells themselves and have a local effect uh, that Increased regulation or increased expression of VEGF can also appear as uh, circulating levels. Um, tumor cells, uh, in addition to immune cells, can also increase VEGF levels too. So, for example, a specific type of immune cell, uh, which essentially gobble up a lot of uh, tumor cells or cell debris, uh, one of those is macrophages. So macrophages are able to secrete um, high levels of VEGF as well. And so that makes me think that these anti-VEGF therapies that you're looking at in clinical trials, they might be, you know, something that not 
that aren't specific for particular patients, that they might be more ubiquitously used rather than some of the therapies that come out where you really need to check the tumor cells to make sure that that particular protein or that particular receptor is on the tumor cell. Here, it sounds like this is something that could be used for most patients. Is that right? That's correct. So actually, even recently, within the past couple of weeks, we've had another FDA approval for the combination of pembrolizumab and lenvatinib. So lenvatinib being one of our VEGF receptor targeting drugs, in addition to other receptors that it does uh, block as well. So that was actually just an advanced renal cell carcinoma. Um, the combination has already been also approved um, in advanced endometrial cancer. And then we're actually, um, Merck, the, the company that produces uh, pembrolizumab, is currently investigating this combination, so pembrolizumab and lenvatinib, in the first line and second line setting for melanoma patients as well. Wow, all really interesting developments, which we will need to investigate more when we take a brief break for Medical Minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about melanoma and brain metastases with my guest, Dr. Twee Tran. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. The American Cancer Society estimates that more than 65,000 Americans will be diagnosed with head and neck cancer this year, making up about 4% of all cancers diagnosed. When detected early, however, head and neck cancers are easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers. Yale Cancer Center was recently awarded grants from the National Institutes of Health to fund the Yale Head and Neck Cancer Specialized Program of Research Excellence, or SPORE, to address critical barriers to treatment of head and neck squamous cell carcinoma due to resistance to immune, DNA-damaging, and targeted therapy. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Twee Tran. We're talking about the care of patients with melanoma and brain metastases. And, you know, right before the break, Twee, you were talking about some of the um, techniques, some of the new trials that are ongoing, especially looking at use of anti-VEGF therapies and immunotherapy for patients with melanoma who have brain metastases. So I thought we'd take a step back and talk a little bit more about patients with melanoma who have brain metastases. So I think all of us know that melanoma is one of the deadliest skin cancers, but how common is melanoma? And of that number, however many patients get melanoma, what proportion of them will actually develop brain metastases? So melanoma, um, over the past couple decades, it's actually the incidence is increasing more recently. Um, about 75,000 new cases are diagnosed each year. Um, and it's a malignancy that is driven by both genetic as well as environmental causes, some of which are related to non 
UV exposure. And so really a, a lot of melanoma develops as we grow older um, in our fifth generation, our fifth decade. Um, and so it, it does have a higher predominance in men. Um, and there are certain mutations uh, associated with it. Uh, you know, 50% of melanomas will contain a BRAF mutation that we can actually target with effective BRAF inhibiting drugs, uh, as well as MEK inhibiting drugs that also help boost that response. So, so Twee, just to pick up on the genetic element for, for a second. One of the things that you said, was, which I found really interesting, and I think our listeners will be interested to learn about as well, is that um, is that there are a lot of melanomas that are not related to UV exposure that may be genetic. So by that, do you mean that we should know about our family history in terms of our risk of developing melanoma? And when you talk about BRAF mutations, are you talking about germline mutations um, or are these more somatic mutations that you'll find in a tumor? No. So the BRAF mutations are, are new mutations. Sometimes we actually see these mutations present, but not associated with any malignancy. Um, but when they do appear associated with a advanced melanoma, it is something that we can actually target. Now, these BRAF mutations are not unique to melanoma. They're actually present in certain types of colon cancers, um, and as well as lung cancers. And so the same drugs apply. They're as effective um, in those other types of cancers as they are in melanoma. And so some people, even if they wear sunscreen and they they make sure that they're not getting a lot of UV exposure and so on and so forth, they can still get melanoma because of these genetic mutations. Is that right? Correct. So in terms of the non-sun-exposed related melanomas, we typically think of those as acral melanomas, meaning they form between the hands, uh, the, the, the webs of the hands and the feet uh, on our extremities. And so these are typically places that, you know, aren't basking in the, in the sun. Um, other places that melanomas can evolve from is the mucosal lining of our upper oral pharynx, as well as the anal rectal region, uh, vulvar melanomas uh, from the reproductive tract, as well as uveal melanomas also from the pigmented layers of the eye. So melanoma, in, in, in essence, is a, is a cancer of the melanocytes, these pigmented cells. And so anywhere where we have pigment, there are, are melanocytes associated with them. And so you know, when you think about these genetic mutations, now that we know more and more about them, um, certainly, you know, people who have a genetic mutation um, who are at increased risk, they may want to take additional precautions, you know, making sure that they're really getting, you know, a good dermatologic exam and staying out of the sun and so on and so forth. But one of the questions that I have is for some genetic mutations, so for example, for um, the RET uh, proto-oncogene, um, which uh, predisposes to thyroid cancers, these are things that newborn babies um, have tested. Whereas other mutations like BRCA, for example, is something that we don't generally test until, you know, somebody comes up to us and says, you know, I have a family history of breast cancer and so should I get tested? Where does BRAF kind of fit into the, the grand scheme of things? 
So it's less clear whether having a pre-existing BRAF mutation ultimately will induce cancer. A lot of the times it doesn't. And it's just something that we pick up um, that's not prognostic or indicative of, of uh, any future malignancy. Um, it's really something that we find later on once the cancer is developed that we can potentially target as an effective therapy. Now, you mentioned BRCA mutations, these BRCA mutations. In a very small subset of patients there, that can, can contribute to increased risk of melanoma as well as pancreatic cancer. So really, it depends on family history. And it really depends on your personal history, too. If you have a patient with multiple melanomas, uh, with a strong family history of multiple immediate kin with uh, melanoma cancers, that's when we typically, a red flag is put up where we have to refer these patients to genetic counseling to see if there are indeed these germline mutations that predispose these patients to developing melanoma as well as other malignancies. And so it really has an impact on family members, particularly children. You know, when we see patients in the clinic, we always counsel them about preventive uh, measures that they can do to limit additional UV damage and sun exposure risk. Uh, But also uh, just, you know, seeing the dermatologist regularly, making sure that they have full body skin exams and making sure that their family and their next of kin are also screened with full body skin exams as well. Yeah. So sadly, there isn't anything that we can do that will um, will kind of reverse that, but certainly taking additional precautions like all of us should be in terms of avoiding sun exposure and wearing sunscreen and avoiding tanning salons and things like that are a really good idea. Twee, I wanted to take us back to the whole concept of brain metastases. So we know that melanoma, as you said, the incidence is increasing. Uh, People are getting this as they get older. What proportion of patients with melanoma actually will get brain metastases? So about 40% of patients with advanced melanoma at some point get a brain metastasis. Now, as we're using a lot of better imaging modalities, mainly MRI of the brain, we're catching a lot of asymptomatic brain metastases. So these are very small metastases. They're not associated with significant edema around them. And so we're able to treat these smaller metastases earlier so that they don't later become a larger issue. Um, you know, there's a lot of toxicity related to symptomatic brain metastases because the brain itself is, you know, encased in a very thick, um, you know, structural support system, which is the skull. And so there's not a lot of room for any lesions to expand or any swelling to occur. Um, And so you have a very finite window to address growing lesions in the brain. And so that's why we've come up with alternative and adjunctive therapies to help achieve local control in the brain better. And that includes not in addition to immune therapy, but also the adding radiation to that plan to help boost that immune response. Yeah. I, I want to get to the treatments and, and what we can do about brain metastases in a minute. But, you know, that 40% number, that seemed high to me. So is that 
40% of people who present with advanced melanoma or any melanoma. So for example, let's suppose you were going to your dermatologist and, you know, they happen to find a, a small melanoma on the back of your hand. Um, would you automatically get a brain MRI and, and is your risk still 40% of getting a brain metastasis? No. So yeah, um, just to correct, that number is really only applies to those with advanced melanoma. So uh, melanoma that has metastasized to other areas of the body. For, typically for staging for melanoma, we really rely on tumor thickness and whether or not it's gone to lymph nodes. Um, when it's gone to the lymph nodes, that makes you a stage three melanoma. And at the initial visit, we usually scan the brain too to just make sure that it isn't a stage four melanoma, that we aren't catching and underdiagnosing what would have been metastatic disease. Um, so that 40% really reflects those with advanced disease that spread beyond the lymph nodes to other distant sites. Got it. And so if you do have a brain met, it, it could be asymptomatic. It could be picked up on an MRI or it could be symptomatic um, at presentation. Um, tell us a little bit more about how exactly you treat these patients um, and um, the effect. So if you presented with symptoms, um, are you likely to resolve those symptoms? How 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 good are our treatments? How effective? The treatments themselves over the past five years has dramatically improved. Um, not only do we have better systemic therapies that we know are effective in the brain, but we also are better at timing in terms of when to go in and resect symptomatic brain metastases or radiate them in conjunction with our systemic therapies. So for example... If a patient presents to the emergency room uh, with nausea, vomiting, some dizziness, and balance issues, they get a brain scan in the emergency room and are found to have new lesions in the brain. If those lesions are large, associated with significant edema, and that is what's contributing to the symptoms, oftentimes we have to get our neurosurgery colleagues involved to rapidly address that, that lesion. The most rapid way is via surgery. You know, it's a morbid procedure, but the outcomes are typically very good and people have a very fast recovery. If, for example, the lesion um, is amenable to what we call stereotactic radio surgery, uh, which is very high radiation, but very focused radiation to try to spare the normal surrounding brain tissue and therefore limit the side effects of radiation in the brain, that itself is also a very uh, effective therapy, it's considered definitive. However, it can only really be treated for lesions that are less than three centimeters. If you have a lesion greater than three centimeters, surgery is the best option. If you have multiple lesions, uh, basically multiple small lesions, too many to be individually treated with what we call stereotactic radiosurgery or gamma knife, then the next option is whole brain radiation. Um, used to be very uh, neurotoxic long-term because these patients would develop cognitive decline later on, memory issues, very similar to dementia. Nowadays, we have additional options where we can spare the hippocampus, this learning and memory center in our brain. Uh, and so we can try to avoid some of these late 
chronic sequela of radiation therapy. Other options are to actually use some of the drugs that have been known to be effective in treating Alzheimer's patients while they get whole brain radiation to try to have a neuroprotective effect to spare the normal brain from receiving some of the detrimental long-term side effects of, of radiation. Wow. I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of potential for therapies uh, for brain metastases. But just in our last 30 seconds, um, so if you have a brain metastasis and it's been treated, what's your overall prognosis? So we're finding with the combination of radiation and immune therapies, uh, prognosis can be actually very good. Before it was three to six months for anyone with brain metastases. Now we're talking years out if you have a tumor that responds to these treatments. And so the, the overall survival, the prognosis is much more bright than what it was 10 years ago. Dr. Twee Tran is an instructor of medicine in medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital and AstraZeneca.